Today on the show, I talk with filmmaker, film critic, and enjoyer of all things creative, Jeff Houston, about movies, TV, owning your artistic tastes, the pressures of being up on new media, and so much more on episode 27 of Who Writes This Stuff. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so glad you're here. You clearly have great taste in how to spend your time. Uh, As always, I'm Nick Flora, coming to you from my house in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, Since the last episode, uh, can I get some recap music underneath? There we go. Uh, I played a couple shows in Indiana this past weekend uh, in Winona Lake and uh, Indianapolis. I played for some nights, people outdoors in Winona Lake in 103 degree heat. Really uh, felt like I earned my my keep that night, uh, for sure. Uh, Also, I played an indie at the Melody Inn, which is this really cool kind of dive punk bar that that has indie artists come through, and it was really fun. Met a lot of uh, great folks. Uh, So thanks for coming out to those shows if you were there. Uh, I have more shows coming up this month and next. uh, House shows in St. Louis on July 26th in Springfield, Missouri, July 27th. Hot Springs, Arkansas at Maxine's July 28th. Uh, Houston, Dallas, Shreveport, Wichita, Kansas, Norman and, Oklahoma, uh, Norman and Tulsa, Oklahoma, all shows coming up in you soon. So go to nickflora.com and click on the Facebook tab for all the info on those. Um, a lot of those, uh, uh, details are getting ironed out as I speak. So I really love to meet podcast listeners on the road. It's always fun. I feel like we are simpatico, uh, as always, you can contact the show, uh, who writes this stuff podcast at gmail.com. Please send me an email uh, talking about past shows or anything that, that maybe struck you or a little thing that you noticed or questions or whatever you have. Send those emails in. Um, iTunes reviews. A few of you have been very sweet to go over. Uh, Annalisa Nutt uh, left uh, the most recent iTunes review. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, leave some iTunes reviews uh, on the iTunes page for the podcast, and I will uh, give you a shout-out on the show. It really does help iTunes know that we're here and uh, maybe give us some uh, some shout-outs on the main page as well and recommends this show to other people who listen to similar ones. Um, uh, on Twitter, at WhoWritesPod, Facebook page is there as well. That's a lot of social media, but, you know, it's 2012. What are we going to do? Also, if you want to donate to the show, you can go to the podcast blog and there's a donate link there that all that really does help us out uh keep the podcast going so all right today on the show uh i'm very excited about it's a filmmaker film critic slash all-around pop culture fun times person jeff houston uh some of you may be familiar with him as half of the steelhouse podcast duo the other half being author creative mark Steele. uh and if you aren't familiar with that podcast or jeff and mark go look it up Listen to all the episodes, then come back and thank me. I'll wait. Oh, good, you're back. Remember when Jeff said the thing to Mark and it was funny slash introspective slash heartfelt? Oh, I love that. But seriously, for 122 episodes, the Steelhouse podcast was the first podcast that I became obsessed with. Uh, it was a cool, interesting look and insight into pop culture, uh, films, TV, music, books, uh, stuff that was going on today, and stuff that resonated with the with Jeff and Mark in the past. It really was the, kind of a weekly eavesdrop on two lifelong friends having interesting conversations about things that I was interested in, pop culture things and movies and, and TV and whatnot. And we and 
it helped that we had a lot of the same ones in common. Uh, but it was also great that I got into a lot of stuff through through things that they had recommended and talked about. Um, and sometimes they had differing opinions and uh, on what was happening in the world of pop art, and that was fine. It was great to hear that uh, play out live. And uh, in 2010, they decided to hang up their podcasting hats, but Jeff Houston and Mark Steele still run Steelhouse Productions out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I'm surprised to find out is still a place. Uh, where they are doing some really cool things in the world of new media, films, etc. And uh, as often happens, I became somewhat friendly over the years with Mark and Jeff. And when I passed through Tulsa, last uh, time I went through there on tour, I gave Jeff a call and asked if he'd be down with coming on the podcast. And here we are. Because he's the nicest guy on the planet, he said yes. All that to say in one breath, I feel like I did. Uh, Here's my talk with Jeff Houston. Go two years? Uh, it might have been three years, or I think just under three years. Like we started in a March or an April or something like that, and then we stopped just three years short of that March. Or, like we ended in January of of two thousand eleven, right. I think. So okay, yeah. So you guys—that's how I came to know you. You and Mark Steele uh, did this God and Pop Culture podcast of sorts, yeah. which I feel like, you know, I, when I was getting people into it, when I was telling people people about, it, I feel like it was a very accurate depiction. But I feel like it, it kind of grew to be much more than that mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that was basically the theme of God and pop culture was the starting point and really what it was about for us was yeah we did follow a lot in pop culture but it really was even just exploring culture mm-hmm. uh, not only through stuff that is popular but just stuff that we were attracted to television series films books music what have you and really speak to them in how we connected with them and maybe the surprising thing about it was most of it wasn't Christian music or Christian videos or, you know, Christian literature or whatever. It was that from time to time, but it really was about just stuff that was, doesn't have a moral label on it per se, just stuff that we were attracted to artistically that we as Christians also connected with on a spiritual level. Uh, even from a doctrinal level, mm-hmm. whether the artist who was making that particular movie or song intended that to be or not, we could see it just because they were expressing themselves honestly. And when you right. do that, whether you're a believer or not, it's when you express yourself honestly, it's going to start having some parallels to things you find, uh, you know, as a Christian. So. Yeah, and that is definitely one of the things, if not the main thing, that attracted me to to your guys podcast which is one of the first kind of podcasts that i ever really like delved into got into uh as far as i had to listen to it every week to see what was going on what you guys which was a huge time commitment because we would have like regularly two-hour episodes oh easily yeah Yeah. sometimes we couldn't shut up there 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 were very special episodes quote of a steelhouse podcast often that we go into the three-hour mark and yeah uh and but but a big aspect of it was that you were guys who were believers and you were talking about you were commenting on uh, pop culture and and those things you that you just mentioned and but it wasn't you didn't feel like the the need to throw in throw the Christian music bone or the Christian right. like you know you didn't stick to that label like you felt or felt like you had to which makes sense because I feel like most people who are into pop culture don't necessarily uh, just you know like we can only consume you know Christian culture <laughs> right. you know like I, especially people who are doing anything in my opinion inter- interesting or creative 
you, you can't solely uh, just draw from one well. Right. And uh, so I, I appreciated that there was that viewpoint that was similar to mine, but it wasn't just strictly like, okay, we're going to open CCM Magazine, go page by page and comment on it. <laughs> because I had already had mm-hmm. that my, with my upbringing. I was very... Uh, I was only allowed to listen to Christian music for a, there was a big period there until my parents were like, "You're fine. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not gonna, you're not gonna listen to those records backwards and, <laughs> and get those crazy devil messages." Right. And it just validated the fact that like no, because I've always felt, and I think I actually wrote in to your to, to you guys before and said this before, but I always felt uh, bad or wrong or like I was doing something wrong when I would take in some sort of media, whether it be a movie that I really that really resonated with me or a band mm-hmm. or a song that wasn't by a quote Christian artist that that moved me. Or yeah. that, you know, and it's like, well this can't because it's not it wasn't created by a Christian. Uh and that was something that wasn't so instituted by my parents, but just by the by a particular youth pastor that I had that was very uh, anti because he had a you know he, well and is indicative of the Christian subculture like, in general as well yes you know what certainly your youth pastor wasn't unique no oh he definitely way. wasn't yeah. and, and the more people I meet who have had similar upbringings as I have have uh, I we have very similar stories of the you know CD burnings and stuff you mm-hmm. know on the church lawn and like all that kind of a deal uh, and I know a lot of people have written into this podcast before saying that. You know, they all went through that where they had to burn all their secular CDs, and they they've re, we've talked. I've had guests on mm-hmm. them talk about rebuying CDs over and over. Hey, again. <laughs> meet another guest who did that same. Really? Day. Oh yeah, yeah. Although I can say for, I didn't burn them; I just got rid of them. Right. But I, I will say though, it was a benefit for me. I was in college at the time when I kind of went through that phase, mm-hmm. and I, I don't use phase as a derogatory term. It was an important phase for me because it was a time where. I really hadn't been serving the Lord uh, really truly. Uh And I needed to clear a lot of that stuff out of my life to get focused and get grounded and really, you know, accept Christ truly. And then once I did that, as I began to then just, you know, not only get older, but go out into what I felt called into, those things started coming back into my life because I knew how to process them. And that's kind of one of the big thing I think when you when we talk about that Christian subculture, that was very close and, and in many ways still is, although mm-hmm. I think it has broadened. Yeah, uh, is there was this fear of garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you bring it into your life, it will corrupt you. And while I, uh, well, I appreciate the concern that comes with that and the uh, desire to protect. What that all counted out was the fact that. Uh, God has not only given us the ability to discern, but actually calls us to discern. And that's what became became very interesting for me as when I started viewing films that were rated R right. or whatever, that they began to delve into truths a lot more honestly and therefore a lot more deeply than Christians were, than ministers were, uh, than I would hear at church or, you know, a, a great case in point of that. Like this was one of these watershed moments in my life. 1995, Dead Man Walking. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you look at Tim Robbins directing, Susan Sarandon, Sean Penn co-starring, three of the most liberal people in Hollywood. I mean, when you want to talk about liberal Hollywood, there's three of your posters. And those are the ones that get mentioned, too. Yeah, those are the ones that get mentioned. Uh, Maybe even rightly so. Yeah. But those three came together. And made a film 
that is as Christian, uh, more Christian than any Christian film I've ever seen. God bless all the people who've made Christian films. But it was honest, true, uh, confronted, hard truths, but did so with grace. And it, what it showed me was, okay, my narrow-minded perception about people who don't follow Christ it's narrow-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that they're following Christ because they made such a great, truthful film. But what it showed me is because they're pursuing truth and they're willing to go wherever it takes them, that they can find it. And that's a good way to meet them and meet culture in general, uh, as opposed to shut the door because there was a R rating on their movie. Right. That's interesting. I actually was going to ask you what, what, what were some uh, case of endpoints of... Uh... Just things that broaden my horizon. Yeah. That was definitely a big one, for sure. And, uh, and I have to say, though, even though I grew up in a culture very similar to yours, there was always, I think, something a part of me, just because I was interested in the arts in general, that never completely gave in to that narrow-minded mm-hmm. uh, line of thinking. And I was always going to be pursuing movies. Uh, movies are my interest. I know music is yours, and most of the people that you talk to on your podcast, music is mm-hmm. the main thing. Film and, and movies is mine, but uh, so I was always going to be interested in that. But but for me, the struggle was, you know, the guilt of am I doing something wrong? Am I walking this moral fine line? And uh, and what I will say is, while I wouldn't necessarily recommend that everybody watch a lot of the stuff that I watch, yeah, uh, I watch it for a reason. In part because I'm an artist, but in part because I know that we've talked about just being very interested in human psychology. Just understanding yeah. humans, yeah, and it's understanding endless, humans is a big part of who I am as a Christian, because mm-hmm. uh, I want to understand myself, I want to understand people, I want to understand the world, the culture I live in. That all comes from my Christian faith, and movies and music, culture, all those things are a great way to to do that, and yeah. explore that. But uh, I do want to ask you a little bit because you are uh, you're the first non uh, musician, non comedian, non performer, right. say that I've had on on the on the show and uh I, want, I love all those things even if my talents are limited to zero in all of those in the things. Mu- oh, really so you don't you don't have any music talent i uh, i was in uh the percussion section in my high school band okay but i wasn't like first chair drum i wasn't sitting on the trap set every pep band yeah you know i was more on the toms or something you know okay a, a side version of that so and i had fun it was great but i just you know my talents are very limited although i love music yeah in fact uh certainly having loved movies for as long as i can remember growing up in the era of spielberg uh much of the music i listened to growing up was john williams the scores of john williams and uh and that you know his music just in and of itself really broadened my horizons just beyond popular music mm-hmm. uh, into all other genres as well. And so I I love music. iPod is one of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, music is just a part of my daily life. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's interesting because a lot of people who don't, as far as people that I meet, <clears throat> especially with, through my job, if they're not doing something musically, music just kind of goes by the wayside as other kind of adult things start happening. You just kind of start like, well, you know, you, you can only kind of play with your toys for so long kind of deal. Right. Uh, but unless you're pursuing it in some sort of uh, hobbyist way, at the very least. So uh, what what was kind of, what made music sort of stay in your wheelhouse as far as uh, something that you wanted to 
keep pursuing as a fan so intensely? I mean, I, I think it's just the, my basic nature of uh, having a fascination with the arts in general. Okay. Uh, there's so many of the arts, not only in popular culture, but even just culture. Like I love going to a museum, things like that, um, uh, to where music just happens to be one of those art forms that I'm endlessly fascinated by, particularly in all its diversity. Uh, there's very there's very few genres that I don't like or don't listen to. Um, so I think it, I think there's just an element to, and then of course, since ult- everything ultimately comes back to me kind of in a cinematic vein or through that filter, uh, at some point I even kind of process music that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's just today I was listening to uh, there's a great independent band called College, which they had a song mm-hmm. on the Drive soundtrack. Uh, very 80s sounding music but it's not kitschy it's like it's like i mean it's totally sounds like it's straight from the 80s but there's something substantial to it there's a there's a mood and a tone to it that maybe i can't even articulate specifically other than to say it's not like listening to a debbie gibson album that era it's like it it would have fit into a john hughes film that's the way very, I can articulate it. That's very good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has that kind of emotion and that kind of depth of humanity to 80s music. Yeah. Putting some synthesizers together creates this mood These that's evocative. like kind of hokey sounds even. Right. And, yeah. and that's really what it yeah. gets down to for me. The reason I'm just constantly drawn to music is because it's evoking something. It's evoking something. And so... Certainly, even in my day job of uh, being a writer, director, uh, primarily for client-based projects, but still I'm trying to be creative. Um, it's just finding that piece of music that starts evoking the mood that I want to create in this particular thing I'm writing, editing, directing, mm-hmm. and music helps cultivate that inside me. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, well, you were saying you view music in kind of a cinematic lens because that seems that's your forte. I do the same thing as far as... I love viewing it, it. I would even go as far as film. And uh, when I listen to comedy, I view it from a, just a songwriting or a writing standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I see how they built this. And you know, the dynamic here, Oh, it goes up here. And then we, it brings it back down. You know, like there is such a flow to it. And, and I always, the emotional it, narrative to yes. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I view it through that lens as well. It's like, well, Oh, if this was, you know, then when I write songs, I, I, I often try to figure out like, what's the the a story and the b story or the you know like mm-hmm. uh, and uh, where's the callback in this and where's the you know and uh so i got it's it's always interesting to me that really uh, you know they're really everything's related i mean it's yeah. all it's, it's why it's all under the art umbrella and i'm sure that if you know we, we spoke to some sort of uh painter or some visual yeah. artist they would tell Sculptor, you it's the yeah. same thing mm-hmm. you know uh it's all it's all waves and and uh nuances and as far as what makes them different, but there's enough that this is the same. That's really that's mm-hmm. really interesting to me. What kind of turned on the first kind of switches for you as far as like pursuing anything in film? Like what 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 made you think? What look beyond that as something that you just enjoyed and just something that like I think I might want to do that for more than just enjoyment. Yeah, I well it uh, I guess to even just start at the basic enjoyment level, I am my generation's cliche. First movie I saw in a theater was the original Star Wars. Oh, nice. You know, I'm five years old or whatever it was. <laughs> right. You know, it, it totally changed my paradigm and my worldview. Yeah. To the extent of five year old can have a worldview, <laughs> George Lucas gave me one. Right. And uh, so that was the Kickstarter. And, uh, but what's funny is I, the first play I was in, 
was my sophomore year in high school. So I hadn't done any plays before, even though I just was fascinated with films uh, growing up. And, and I, I forget, I, I can't remember the specific catalyst other than I think I might have, I just had loved films so much. And to whatever extent I analyzed at that age and during grade school, that's what I did. I just always thought about movies that I must have saw a play in high school and thought, I could do better than that, you know, and I did. (laughs) Uh, And I, I mean, you know, I won acting awards at competitions and things like that. And I think what was interesting to me is my junior year in high school, I was, uh, the lead in our last play of the year. It was a stage version of uh, The Pink Panther Strikes Again. And after that play was over, uh, we you know, all the cast members line outside the front of the theater and kind of greet people as they leave and all that. And complete strangers hugging me, thanking me, uh, just for what a wonderful time they had. And it, it, and it, and it what caught me was it wasn't my ego being boosted or stroked or whatever that drew me to it. It was the fact that they were touched. Mm-hmm. And what that brought me back to was the reasons I was so drawn to movies is I grew up in a low uh, income family and things were tough. Uh, I, my oldest brother had uh, kidney disease at the age of seven. Just a lot of challenges mm-hmm. growing up. And movies truly were an escape. They were, in a sense, a ministry to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really helped me deal with life. And so when people started approaching me about how I've brightened their day, it really wasn't about my ego. It really was about, I can't believe that I had the opportunity to, even if just for a couple of hours, to mean something to somebody the way movies have always meant something to me. And that's when it started shifting in my mind to, going beyond something to enjoy, but to something to pursue, and not only pursue, but then that started broadening what I would watch. I went from watching just basically pure entertainments that you do as a kid to wanting to explore, okay, what are these films that are trying to be about something, that are trying to say something? And you begin to discover some of them do that very well. Some of them do it very pretentiously, right. you know? Uh, so that that whole thing just started to really broaden my perspective of not only wanting to pursue it, but why I wanted to pursue it because I wanted to, I wanted to edify people in the way that art form edified me. And that makes sense. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned like the, the kind of your taste changing a little bit too, because I mean, I remember being, being younger and watching uh, dead poet society when I was probably too young to see it, but it moving mm. me, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that, where I was just like, whoa, movies can be more than just yeah. a fun time for 90 minutes. Like they can actually like teach you things. And, and there, but there also is that, that danger, especially early on getting into, getting into film where, you know, there's stuff that, that is just out there and is just too pretentious. But I know I went through this where I, I thought I had to like it. So I, I let myself like, no, it is. I would defend pieces of of film and and even music to a certain extent or make force myself to like it when i was like you know and i learned i I remember the the first time i learned the uh the term oscar bait (laughs) and i was like and 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 as soon as i heard that word i could i could recognize it from a mile away yeah even from a poster or trailer Mm -hmm. you know and uh and yet despite having that revelation now in your life you still like we bought a zoo 
<laughs> I do like Ubuntu Zoo, and but that's an, and that's another kind of turn in. Uh, well, I know I know that this is going. This was made to manipulate my emotions, uh-uh. and sometimes it's fun to have your mani- your emotions manipulated. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Cameron Crowe, with artists I love, I tend to give them way more of a break uh, than than most people should. Maybe, but I think it actually goes deeper than that because. Uh, I think it goes beyond you just being an apologist or a fan. At some level, Cameron Crowe gets you. And you can watch We Bought a Zoo and hear all the complaints about it and go, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying. Well, and then most of them make sense. And I'm not going to apologize for those or make uh, excuses for those or try and convince you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for me, in a very similar fashion, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's Steven Spielberg. And what's interesting to me is I can even look back uh, over his filmography. In fact, I've even just had this kind of awareness, this very specific awareness just in the last couple of years is because I'm always thinking about his films. When I was five years old and just beginning to look up into the stars and be amazed, he gave me Close Encounters. When I got a little bit older and things started getting really tough at home and life was tough, he let me escape through Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, when I was starting to get older and kind of starting to lose my innocence, he gave me E.T. to hold on to my innocence a little bit longer and not let it go in a fight for it. Uh, when I got a little bit older and I had no choice, the world was forcing me to lose my innocence, he gave me Empire of the Sun to figure out what does that look like? How do I grow up? Um, when I started developing my worldview, he gave me Schindler's List. When I started developing myself really as an artist, he and Stanley Kubrick gave me AI. Uh, so, you know, all these films that uh, he, there's something about him as a filmmaker that speaks to me, but I can't even watch 1941. Uh, certainly yeah. many consider his worst film and there's a lot of bad stuff about it, but there's a lot of great craftsmanship in there too that I just respond to. Hook, I love Hook. A lot I of people Hook. dog Hook. I love no, that movie. It's so good. I get the complaints. I can watch it, but you know what? There's just something about the heart of the him as a as a filmmaker and as a person that's just like, man, he's speaking to me, and I get why other people have some problems, but I just it's not that I'm excusing them. There's just there's something deeper there that I'm connecting with that I can I can't articulate or I don't want to apologize for. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly, that is Cameron Crowe to me and so many people, <clears throat> because the last few things he put out were just kind of, you know, weren't as edgy as maybe, you know, people like to remember him. Uh, well, maybe, the thing but... about Cameron Crowe for me, and this is really how I would define it, is Cameron Crowe, for m- most of his filmography, was very similar to John Hughes in this respect. Both those filmmakers made very conventional films and stories with very unique voices. So you look at their films, Mm. they follow kind of a basic formula. They even follow familiar uh, story beats, emotional beats. Character types. Character types. But man, their voices are so unique and so personal. Uh, So personal yet so universal. I mean, they were special artists, John Hughes and Cameron Crowe both. And for me, I feel like the last couple of films for Crowe is... He's still making the very conventional movie, but somewhere the voice got lost. Yeah. The unique voice got lost to me. I still hear hints of it like uh, 20 Seconds of Courage. Right. You know, that's that's that. a Cameron Crowe voice. Oh, man. But I felt like I'm just hearing it whisper now 
as opposed to permeate the film like that kind of similar voice permeated Jerry Maguire. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with just leading off with that whole, you know, uh, letter about how things should oh be gosh. and all that stuff, you know. So, uh, I, mean, I haven't given up on Cameron Crowe, but I just feel like his unique voice somehow has been softened or lost to a degree. Yeah. And that's what I'm missing. And I wonder, you know, you, I always think about the personal lives of, of, the, of the filmmakers, and I know this, this past year him and his wife finalized their divorce, and they've been split up for a few years, and yeah. <clears throat> who knows how long, you know, there was something going on before that. Under, and what does underneath. that do to a person well, exactly. and then as an artist? And, yeah. and what kind of existential stuff does that make somebody go through that they're, they, they could possibly... I mean, I definitely know when I'm going through something existential or, like, relational with... with uh, whether it be loved ones or just people in my community or just any kind of discourse, my head isn't completely in the game uh, where it used to be. And I, I do, I can phone things in artistically with, mm -hmm. and, and so I wonder that, that I was or another dynamic might be at play with Crow. It might not be him phoning stuff in or not totally on his game. It might be because whatever he went through, um, he's going to, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to go a lot darker and deeper to the abyss. Yeah. Or you're going to go the other way and you're going to say, you know, uh, before I might not have completely embraced this level of sentimentality, but now I run to it mm -hmm. because there's a comfort there. Mm. There's a healing there yeah. that might be sappy to most other people. But for me, I need that. I need to believe in that. I need to express that. And we bought a zoo, got a little too sappy for me. Yeah, uh, it got a little too sappy for me. Yeah. And But I, I needed, there, it, I saw it in a... Uh, in a period like like you were saying, I where I needed to, I needed to hear that twenty seconds of courage yeah. line, like like a ton of bricks. I need I needed that line. And Matt Damon can deliver it. He, 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 sure he really can. can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a really good actor. He is yeah. a really good actor. And and you know and and even like with the the girl. I mean, I don't want to talk about we about to say too much, but even that, <laughs> even that little girl in it like is so cute. Like one of oh, the she cutest, was one of the cutest little kids I've ever seen, yeah. and they kept cutting back to her way too many times. Mm. But why wouldn't you? You know, like, <laughs> she's cute. Come on, she's adorable. Yeah. Uh, and I can I can uh, kind of understand the conversation in that editing bay where they're like, no, just keep going back to it. And, but mm. a, a lot of people uh, love to crap on Elizabethtown, and Elizabethtown was uh, I it was the first movie where I had that experience where I was like, no, I understand all my friends. I have all these friends that are in film school that love to rag on me for it. Mm -hmm. and, it and it gets brought up in their, in their film classes and the entire in film class, in, including the teacher, just take giant craps on it. Uh, because they, because they, because he was once revered, he had like three great movies in a row. Mm -hmm. And then there's this one. They love to see pretentious people love to see, uh, good people f fall a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. So, and so, and I, it was the first time where I stopped apologizing for the art that I mm -hmm. like, you know, I was like, you know what? I can't explain it. They asked me to explain it. I can't explain why this resonates with me. It just does. Um, I see the flaws, but even because of the flaws, like I see that Orlando Bloom does a terrible American accent. <laughs> I see that the story is a little bit uh, wobbly and doesn't really flow well. I see that it, it is works like a giant music, like like a music video in a lot of ways. Like mm -hmm. the music doesn't stop. But I don't care. Like mm -hmm. it does something to me. Like I, I at it, some level, Cameron Crowe still laying himself out there. Yes, yeah. especially living in an industry town. There's so much kind of pretension and and oh, uh, yeah. and snobbery that goes around. And uh, the older I get, thankfully, I just I just don't care about it anymore. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting to ultimately denying yourself as far as 
you know, the, the personal taste that we've all been implanted with, you know, and whether it's deemed cool by the, the social judges that are out there or not. Well, and when you really embrace, you know, who you are as a person and specifically what you love in terms of art uh, and you and you get past that need to apologize for it or explain it or be a part of the group think there's a very relaxing element to that. Uh, you do discover yourself more as an artist. And I, I just like uh, not having to live up to, I just don't have any time. I just, yeah. There's no energy for needing to somehow live up to group think, group opinion, not only group, group critique, but even like group fascination. Uh, a great case in point is as we record this, we're a couple days out from the big debut of The Hunger Games you right. know, into theaters. Yeah. And I haven't read the books. Uh, and just, man, it's like I get, I see on my Facebook feed just everybody so geeking it. out about the Hunger Games. And I've got uh, many friends just inundating with Jeff, you have to read the books. I've seen it. You have books, to yeah. go see the movie. And I'm just like, you know, the, at some point, and it's like, I'm not making a judgment call on the Hunger Games. It's probably great. Yeah. I'm not making a judgment on it. I, but what I do recoil at is this this demand that I must you just have to read this? No, no, I don't have to. Yeah, you know, and until something about it sparks my interests uh, and sparks my fascination, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to go see it. Everybody have an absolute blast with it. I'm not trying yeah. to. I'm not trying to. You know, be a wet blanket. It's just. But I do. What wears me out is people just telling me over and over that I have to consume something. And it almost just makes me that much more just go, yeah, no, I don't. Yeah. That takes a lot of uh, restraint for me because I used to have that mindset. Yes, I do have to see it. You're right. Mm -hmm. I am, you know, especially the more and more that my friends or my kind of people in my community would brag on me for knowing a lot about films. Like, oh, ask Nick. He always knows those little, like I was, before IMDb was around, I was the IMDb. And I still, like, there are friends that will text me and ask me random little questions about about movies or who is the actor who's so-and-so. And I love being that guy. Mm-hmm. It's just that's what my brain has decided to retain, and I, I, I love being that. <laughs> but a big shift happened about five years ago when I decided, no, I'm not going to – I'm not going to partake in this because genuine interest wasn't there to begin with. And just because everybody is jumping on it doesn't mean that I have to – Either and that was with the the Harry Potter movies was the first time I haven't seen any of them I've read any of the books mm-hmm. and uh, and I know I I would probably enjoy it I I understand I've I've heard you and Mark talk about it uh, on your podcast and I, I completely understand the you know everything that, all my friends that love it you know why they love it they've explained it to me and that mm-hmm. sounds great but I just <clears throat> and I probably will at some point partake in it but uh, it's just been nice to sit back and be like like you just said yeah go have fun with it I. Yeah, and okay I'm one of those people that, that I have no compulsion to sit here and try and convince you otherwise. Yeah, no. You know, you don't, you're not interested. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it's not scripture. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it was with like the shows like Lost. And so like, you know, so many. That's close to scripture. Though. <laughs> so many people would, uh, when they found out I like Lost, they're like, oh, you're going to try to convert me. And I'm like, no, it's fine. Like, yeah. you know, I, I would never try to, I'm not one to try and convert somebody to a particular piece of art. But man, I, I. Lost would be one of those I, I would try and make a convincing case. Yeah. Because, but here's the thing too, is even for me, I, 
it wasn't the mythology as great as it was. And don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, it's a great mythology. That's not what fascinated me. What fascinated me was it's, uh, get real hyperbolic here, it's arguably uh, the best parable this side of Christ's parables. Wow. I mean, when, because of this intentional exploration of uh, issues of faith, spirituality, from a largely a Judeo-Christian perspective, although there were some Eastern religious thought in there as well, but it, it was largely Judeo-Christian, and just uh, the honesty, the accuracy of a lot of that exploration, it was the themes. Right. More than anything, the themes and how the characters' lives emerged from those themes. And then the mythology was kind of this icing. Mm-hmm. But uh, if an episode wasn't particularly uh, mytho- mythology-centric, but really did the characters great, man, that's all I needed. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, I wanted to... I did want to ask you, because you guys on on your podcast did such a great job with counting down, you know, top oh, okay. whatever. And, and since it has been uh, a year or so since... I know that a lot of Steelhouse fans are gonna are gonna tune into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any? Which uh, we should say right okay. now, this whole podcast is literally being recorded <laughs> where Mark and I recorded every Steelhouse podcast in the same office room at, at the same desk. And so, for all of you fans uh, of the Steelhouse podcast, <laughs> uh, know that if you, yeah. if, if you if you gain any further enjoyment from this discussion from knowing that we're in the same place, we're in the same spot. I'm in the same spot. I am Mark Steele. Then no jangling will happen. Oh, thank uh, you. Because thank I, have, you. I have respect for you as my guest. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, but I'm your guest too. You don't so like the jangle either. I'm you're on, probably in I'm between somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You're a musician. It depends so. on what time in the morning I listen to the podcast and, and the jangle would happen, right. uh, which I know was always early for you guys. So, right. uh, and, it, and you you probably really appreciated the first O'Danny Boyle, but I after did. the one hundredth O'Danny Boyle, no, it was it was you still like the it? first okay. O'Danny Boyle. I did enjoy. It was the twelfth one that got on my nerves, but the fiftieth one that made me laugh again. <laughs> it came full. Circle. You have a relationship with that uh, uh, jangle. There, there are a lot of great shows and and films and, and yeah. stuff and, and we don't have a lot of time but and i know i've heard a lot of people on the on the facebook page talk mm-hmm. about it and just uh i become friends with uh, with a fellow fans of the podcast they would be like well i wonder what mark and jeff would have to say about this piece of media or this yeah. piece of media uh which which has to feel good you know to know that sure that, uh you know it, it could be weird thinking that maybe you know you're not the definitive voice on it but you no. know that you're at least you're people appreciate your my perspective yeah, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and that and that's that's exactly why uh I resonated so so much with you guys, and mainly probably because I was in the middle between you guys. I was very mm. much uh, equal parts Mark and Jeff, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I had buddies that were that were completely on Mark's side with everything and didn't know what weird indie stuff you were talking about. Uh, that, that's actually then, was one of the kind of unique <laughs> aspects of Mark and I's dynamic is we're different in a lot of ways, yeah. but there are some core just values and things that, that things that we value that we connect deeply on and why we're so close yeah. as friends. But aesthetically, we have a lot of differences. Uh, I wanted to, I did want to ask about a couple things, but I was going to ask if there are any shows or anything television wise right now that, that is, there's, that you're just hooked on that people need to know about in your opinion. There's a lot of bad television. Yeah. Um, that having been said, it is uh, as many argue it's probably the golden age of television yeah, right now. It's never been better and never been worse. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I, I don't have enough time for the stuff that makes it never ha- have never been better. Uh, there's a lot of great television on, on 
uh, out there right now that I'm still trying to catch up on. Most of it is on these uh, basic cable or premium cable channels mm-hmm. that um, I have. There really isn't much on network television at this point that I watch. Thursday night comedy is on NBC. Not even all of those. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I'm really. I still. I'm still a diehard Survivor fan. Although this season's really testing my patience. But other than that, I'm not a reality TV show guy. I'm not a competition guy. You think the network versus the cable thing has to do with the the 22, 23 episode seasons versus the the kind of 12 to 16 model that a lot of the cable. So it's easier to well, take in. I, I think, consume. but I think even now, broadcast television, network television is gravitating more towards those shorter run season models. It, not in every case. Certainly, a, a lot of their flagship shows they're still trying to milk twenty two right. to twenty four episodes out of. But a lot of these shows, uh, they're having shorter seasons, shorter blocks, that kind of thing. Because I think they're just seeing that's where the audience is right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what I certainly appreciate. I'd rather just have a solid 10, 12, 13 episodes that are really well done. And the other thing about the, the cable networks too is they have somehow formed a different production model where they're like producing an entire season before that season even premieres on television. Like they're done with the whole season and then it plays. Whereas on broadcast, oh, yeah. there's still a little bit of bleed over of they they start production, then the season starts, production's continuing. They're still going, yeah. And so what that shows me is on cable, they really there's more of an art, a holistic approach of they're not hearing, they're not getting responses from blogs and all that stuff that might affect how they write episode eight. Right. They've sat down and said, here's our vision for the season. Here's the arc we're going to cover. And it's easier to do that when you're looking at 10 episodes as opposed to 22. And you're not having to add as much filler. And so you get a richer, more direct story, something that has more vibrant and uh, vibrancy and energy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the shows that I follow right now, Mad Men is the best show on television for me. And, uh, of course, it's uh, fifth season yeah. is this Sunday. And I just, I'm, stoked. I, I'm so stoked to see where that each of those seasons always begin at, at they don't pick up right where it left off mm-hmm. and you're like oh wow i've got to reacclimate myself i got to find my footing again and i love that i love having i know i love when a, a a television producer or movie maker or whatever can have me walking on unsteady ground but they're so good at what they're doing i know i'm not going to fall yeah you know, there's but it still there. feels unsafe and there's tension there. And I love that. And uh, Matthew Weiner, who's the executive producer of Mad Men, is uh, as good as anyone. Yeah. Uh, Vince Gilligan being another on AMC That's with Bra- say. Breaking Bad, uh, the most intense show on television right now. Uh, there, that's just it, it just continues. It's like I don't even know where they can go at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll probably only go one more season as yeah, it should be. Yeah, they're planning on it. Because that's the thing, is like something like Mad Men could go for several more seasons because in terms of its narrative through line, it's there's not a tightrope there. Mm-hmm. You can explore those characters at any stage in life. On Breaking Bad, there's this very specific tightrope that's going to have to break, snap at some point. This yeah. can't go on forever. Yeah. And so I think they're smart and I think... This is hard, the last season. It is yeah. the last season. This has to end yeah. somehow. And I'm glad that they made the choice to say, we're not going to drag this out and try and milk it. Let's just keep 
cranking up the tension until the fall happens. And the way they've set it like. up in the last season in the finale to oh, to snap geez, yeah. is in, like just just from a character arc standpoint yeah. from, our, from our main two characters With Walt, yeah, is so especially. fascinating. Yeah. And I be, I have become I mean I I love that show but I've become such a fan of, while I was you're an instant fan of Brian Cranston I've been become such a fan of Aaron Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh and especially his character is just so fascinating but uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to spoil anything. But that is, yeah, well, like, you, you, in terms of a character moment, that scene that he had when he was going to that, uh, you know, AA group or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, essentially the evil intentions he brought into that meeting. Yeah, just saying so much about his character and the way that was written. The one he was talking about where he he killed a dog. Yeah, is that oh my gosh. Oh, it's just like you think just just when you're wanting to, and you, you still somehow feel for the guy because. The, not only is the writing good, but Aaron Paul as a talent, as an actor, mm-hmm. there's a humanity there that you you feel sad for him as opposed to hating him, right. even though you should hate him, because yeah. he's, he's doing yeah. hateful things. Yeah. But you you've been on the journey with him as well, and you've seen where the uh, how the journey has brought him to that. And there's a tragedy as opposed to just being angry about it. Yeah. So that, that's really well done. Um, uh, I know a show that we've talked about that's on HBO, Enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike White, which is a side note, and we uh, we should talk about your music here a little bit before our conversation wraps up. Um, okay. J- just just a thought. You should take. You know how some of those episodes end with basically a poem. Yes. You should take one of those poems and write write a song to it. Send it Mike's way. That that actually is an interesting uh, little exercise I could do to possibly because there is a very. Um, it does end with the. I mean, it, the whole show is kind of based around mantras and mm-hmm. being Zen and being one with ourselves, yeah. and and uh, and so it does end with these little poems that are are said by an often, uh, well, I should say, very rarely put together character. But yeah. she always has these little like. She's still recovering from a nervous breakdown. She absolutely. thinks she's healthy, but she's not. Yeah. Well, and what I love about that series in particular, if I can even just kind yeah, of no, extol it, is. Uh, what Mike White, who has written every episode, he conceived the series along with Laura Dern, who's the star. Basically what it is, I don't know if this is intentional by him or if it's just by virtue of the fact that he's exploring his subject honestly. But to me, the, the, this whole first season, all eight episodes I think it was, was about the failure of self-improvement. The path of trying to improve yourself first and, and above everybody else and all other things is an empty path and it's a path that ultimately is going to frustrate and uh you the path that, er, that the world is telling you this is the path to fulfillment doesn't fulfill mm-hmm. and that is a profound thing to say and uh and so it's things like that that even though it, it's on hbo it has very much rated r type of content um and isn't trying to present a christian worldview i as a christian see him pre- presenting truth honestly and respond to him and go, yeah, that he, he has hit a key about how people's best efforts lead to unfulfilled ends. And mm-hmm. he, he's tapping into that. So I respond to stuff like that. Um, a lot of shows on HBO, actually, uh, not every single one of them, but there's a lot of series on HBO that I, I like. FX has a lot of good shows, uh, or at least they used to. I guess I'm not watching as many right now. I'm watching Louie right now, yeah, which uh, is a great show. Here, there's another show that, man, really taps into deep insights about humanity. He has a sympathetic way of tapping into 
our, the worst parts of our nature and the most embarrassing and shameful parts of our nature. Mm-hmm. But man, he gets it, man. We're broken. How do you deal with that? How do you live with that? And here's a guy who, who doesn't have a basis of faith trying to figure all that out. And he never can. Not that I can as a person of faith, but at least I have a, a basis for which brings me peace. Right. Um, and a foundation. But uh, so th- and those are shows that immediately come to my mind. Although there's a, there's a lot, there's many more shows on television that I'm sure I'm trying to catch up on. I, I did want to ask, I had a couple uh, viewer, I, I put a thing oh, okay. on, on the uh, on the Steelhouse uh, Facebook page, which is still... Still there. Still there. Yeah. Still uh-huh. rocking it. Yeah. So I had some old uh, Steelhouse standbys that had some, a couple questions for you. But Sweet. we talked a little bit about kind of seeing things things through a lens that uh, and not letting maybe outside pretentious overthinkers mm-hmm. like get in and just let you know your own personal taste dictate what you like and what, what mm-hmm. you don't like. But uh, you were a film critic. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's one of the hats that you wear. <laughs> right. Uh, how do you let how do you let that not taint kind of what you would have you know, watching it through a film critic, watching a movie through a film critic lens versus, oh, I'm just going to go enjoy this movie. How do you kind of weigh the two or do you? Um, I don't because being a film critic is just an extension of our, how I already think. Okay. Uh, By the nature of the fact that not only does film fascinate me and so I'm always thinking about it and processing it and fascinated by breaking it down, but it's also what I do daily as my job, uh, just working for a film and video production company. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a writer, director, and editor on staff here. And so it's just a part of what I do. And I love it. I love uh, trying to figure out, man, why is this thing working? I want to articulate. I want to figure it out. Uh, and, and so particularly when it's like these great auteurs like David Fincher, uh, there's a personal fulfillment that I get on those rare, uh, rare occasions when I screened the social network about a month before it opened. There's really no buzz about it. Yeah. Uh, but I previous screened it to write a review for it, uh, at crosswalk.com. Uh, I'm one of four (laughs) critics there, so I don't write all the reviews there, but I just occasionally contribute. And that was one of them. And so I was floored by this film and had, thankfully had about a month to kind of put my review together and really think through and articulate what it was I was responding to. And, and I, I'll take notes during a screening because, oh. because what I learned was so I'm at a point now where the articulation can instantly occur to me, but then I'll forget it if I don't write it down. What kind of things do you write down? Uh, just little jots like uh, whether it be... I, I like like when I see a theme develop um, or or a line that said that kind of there's the theme right there just articulated beautifully perfectly or a scene that plays out or a moment that happens um, I, I my notes are normally based around uh, not so much what's happening but why something working but to kind of get back to my social network thing it was like uh, when everybody when the zeitgeist started building for that movie I was just so excited because there are films at times where I get so excited about it. And then there's there's some people agree with me and some people don't. But when I'm able to see something just free of any hype, any baggage and just respond to it, Mm. which is why even in general, I I usually avoid trailers. I don't like watching trailers uh, because I like to go in fresh. Yeah. You know. Uh, I mean, I'll see trailers from another time. I'm not like real Nazi about yeah, it yeah. or whatever. But 
But you know, the, the other fascinating thing too for me is like the, the reason I was responding to Social Network is because the director David Fincher I've responded to his work in the past, mm-hmm. and the the big thing I respond I respond to about David Fincher is he's basically our 21st century. Well, he was started in the late 20th century, but uh, our modern day Stanley Kubrick. And what I mean by that is not only is he an extremely meticulous, very specific craftsman like Kubrick was, but he's exploring the same things, themes, mm-hmm. uh, meaning specifically he's, he takes a look at society and sees where it's falling apart. So you take a look at a movie like Seven. I mean, literally, we're talking about the seven deadly sins. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the things that destroy society. And so many of... Uh, uh, so many of Fincher's films are like Kubrick's films was looking at society and saying, if society's not careful, here's where we're headed. Or seeing us like with the social network, it wasn't just about the founding of Facebook. It, it really was, to whatever extent they fictionalized Mark Zuckerberg, which obviously I'm sure they did to some extent. They fictionalized him to the degree, basically what the story they told was what drove Mark Zuckerberg to create Facebook is what drives somebody to post 15 times a day on their Facebook page. That's a very interesting idea to me. Mm-hmm. And what compels somebody to post uh, 15 times a day on a Facebook page every single day, day after day, because they're desperate to define themselves in other people's eyes. They're so desperate to be validated, mm-hmm. for people to see them in a certain way. And that's what their telling of the founding of Facebook was. Ultimately, it was about Mark Zuckerberg just feeling really belittled by how he had been defined in his life by other people and him wanting to define himself. Yeah. And that pursuit destroyed him inside, even as he was succeeding on the outside. On the outside, yeah, he's succeeding. On the inside, he's falling apart. Mm -hmm. And I think when people are desperately, so desperate for people to see them in this very specific way that they talk about everything that they're doing, they name drop the people they've been with, whatever the case may be, you know, uh, it, it comes from an insecurity. And I even have to look at my own self. It's like, man, to what extent am I doing that? To what extent is that playing out in my life? And it kind of like, it hits you like a, a spiritual conviction. I love that. I mean, yeah. I just love that stuff. Yeah. And, and and Fincher's films do that in a lot of ways. Fight Club was another I great agree. example. Yeah, of that. I never really thought about that. Yeah. In fact, Fight Club was before 9-11. Uh-huh. Okay. And that story, that whole film was about, here is a generation of males that don't have a war to define them. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have something to define themselves, you think about how that movie ends. Literally, the last shot is society Buildings. crumbling. Yeah. The whole message of that movie is, uh, and of course, you even got Meatloaf. Uh, it's not just we don't have a way to define ourselves as men, but we're actually being feminized. You look at Meatloaf's character. He was literally... He was growing breasts. He was yeah. growing breasts. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, That's fascinating. It, it, yeah. if, if, if men don't find a proper outlet to be men, our society's going to fall. That was the message of that movie. And it was exactly right. Mm-hmm. And while we've had a very, you know, defining moment at 9-11, and we haven't found necessarily the best, purest ways like we did maybe in World War II, uh, but even that can be oversimplified, the reasons there. To some extent, uh, there has been a remasculization a little bit yeah. uh, post 9-11. We've gone down, a, I'll say at the, this is the very least, we've gone down a different route because of that moment then I think we were headed at the end of the 20th century as it relates to man and society. There's still a lot of uh, things wrong. There's a huge problem of uh, uh, fatherless homes right now, so mm-hmm. I don't want to diminish the fact that 
No. Men are not on top of things right now. I'm not no. arguing that. But society went in a different way than I think where that film was saying it might go. Although it's still there's still a lot of universality to it too. You can watch Fight Club still very relevant because it's relevant about masculinity. Mm-hmm. And mas- if masculinity doesn't find its proper place, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. You're going to go crazy, literally. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think we still see that a lot. So uh, uh, kind of getting off, uh, off into tangents. There, but no, that's great. I get off into, like, what I get off into tangents are, it's about filmmakers. Uh, uh, I, I'm auteur-driven. It's all about the director. There's only one reason that I'm, I'm interested or even excited about seeing the Avengers. It's because Joss Whedon? It's because Joss Whedon. If he wasn't the writer-director of that and it was just somebody... I probably wouldn't go see it. Everything, I don't care how much cool the trailer it. looked. I've heard it's Joss Whedon is why I'm going to be there. That's and I don't think you're alone in that because I've heard that a lot of people say like, "Are you kidding me?" Because superhero movies have done nothing but been underwhelming, right? Uh, oh, with the exception of uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman, exactly. Movies, yeah. But mm-hmm. but everything else has just been like, "Yeah, really okay." Mm-hmm. Uh, but Joss Whedon being on that helm. He has such a reputation mm-hmm. of following through and being interesting as a right. filmmaker and actually telling a story. And not that he's going to give me a Christopher Nolan movie. No. I want a Joss Whedon exactly. movie. And, he, and I so hope he delivers on that because he is one of those guys like J.J. Abrams. J.J. Uh, Abrams has been given the opportunity to make big blockbuster movies and he's delivered on his promise. Yeah. I think Joss Whedon's now being given that same opportunity, and I really hope and anticipate that he's going to deliver on that promise as well mm-hmm. and continue to make more. Brad Bird just said with live-action Mission Impossible 4, yeah. really delivered on the promise that he developed as an animator, a uh, director in animation. So I really get excited about when these great directors get these new opportunities or continue to extend the foundation they've already you know put out there. And so, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about... The film I'm more excited about seeing in 2012 than anything. Uh, I'm about to speak out of two sides of my mouth. <laughs> Bottom line is, if I could see the uh, the Dark Knight Rises right now, that'd be the first film I'd want to see ahead of anything. Yeah, I'd go with you. Bar none. <laughs> um, but man, really close behind that. Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, maker of There Will Be Blood, most recently. Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. Um, a very unique uh, yes. voice. Uh, near the end of this year, he's, uh, his film is going to be, it's called The Master, uh, set in the 1950s, about a minister who, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who takes in a younger guy under his wing, I think played by Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, while he's also kind of basically brainwashing the masses in some sort of respect. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, sounds like typical leftist Hollywood. Right. But Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, he is not a guy to simplify things. And he really explores deep. And actually what I've read about it, very little is known about it. Uh, some reports have said this is actually kind of his treatise against Scientology. So it might be more of an L. Ron Hubbard type mm-hmm. of character. I don't know. Um, but just the fact that he is exploring this topic and the title of it is The Master, Master. with Philip Seymour Hoffman in that lead yeah, role. Yeah, both those guys. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, I think, can bring it too. So I'm just... Uh, and, and so the fact that I'm that excited when you've also got Spielberg's coming out with his Lincoln movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, mm. got a new Coen Brothers film with Justin Timberlake being one of the really? co-stars. I hadn't heard that. Um, I think it's set in the 1930s. Carrie Mulligan's in it. Actually, the Ooh. star is... He, he's not well-known. He's actually... 
The guy who played Carrie Mulligan's husband in Drive. Oh, the Hispanic yeah. actor? Really? And it's about a singer. Oh, I'll just say, I just love filmmakers like the Coens that, yeah. that are willing to go there and uh, uh, just fascinate me as a Christian. I was going to... Uh, that actually segues really nicely into this question. Uh, good old Steelhouser Brian Holt uh, hey, hey, hey. wrote and asked... Uh, what the Holt? I know, exactly. What the... Stay home! Uh, he, he wanted to... Uh, you hear kind of your assessment on uh, the kind of current state of the depiction of Christian faith in film from, you know, like courageous, like, oh. like that to the tree of life and what might be working and what isn't. Well, specifically, I guess from the Christian vein, uh, the tree of life is on another level, but that's because the tree of life is on another level of any movie, Christian or otherwise. Mm-hmm. That is a, a masterpiece. It's extremely polarizing. Oh, uh, most people, uh, there's gonna be a lot of people that, that hate it, don't have the patience for it. It's not a, a clean narrative. It's really more of a meditation uh, with a series of events. Um, but what I love about that film is at its core, and talk, here's another film that opens with a scripture from Job. Yeah. Um, it's all about the very, what the very core, uh, in many respects, of what Judeo-Christianity is about. Grace versus nature. Nature being uh, essentially Dar- Darwinian philosophy, the hard realities of nature. It's just cruel, it's cold, um, and it's destructive. And the need for grace to not only cope with it, but can, is there a way to heal it? Is there a way to restore what nature continually, by its nature, mm-hmm. breaks down and destroys? Uh, not only do we need grace for that, but what, what power, how far can grace go? What is, what is the depth and breadth of grace? And for two out, or about two and a half hours, the film meditates on that in a variety of ways, from the microcosm of a family in the 1950s, to the macrocosm of the entirety of time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the history of our galaxy. Seriously. Uh, it, I mean, that's that's potentially pretentious, but it's just done with such uh, artful authenticity that, uh, man, I respond to Terrence Malick as a filmmaker. Take something like Courageous. Um, I, one thing, it, it's, it's the kind of movie in general, Christian or otherwise, that I generally don't respond to it's following a very specific formula um going for and it kind of preaches its message Mm -hmm. and here's the thing a lot of people dog christian films for being too preachy um i don't think they should reserve that critique for a lot of christian films i think they it could very easily be the same critique applied to very liberal films you know just any film that preaches in general uh, starts reducing its power. That said, mm-hmm. I think Courageous, uh, for the, I think it's the Kendrick brothers, uh-huh. was a really uh, a solid step forward for them. Uh, I, I don't want to give it any, away any plot points, but there was basically a point in the movie where I expected the Magic Jesus card to be played. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is going to fit, Jesus has got this. Yeah. Guess what? Jesus didn't have it. The, the Magic Jesus card wasn't played. And that really pleasantly surprised me i was just like whoa they actually went there yeah and now these characters are gonna have to deal with that that i was like good job man because because that that's honest yeah there were still elements that made me kind of you know it's it's sappy and whatever and you know so be it right um but they had 
pun intended, they had the courage to say, hey, we can't play the Magic Jesus card here. These characters are going to pray, and they're going to pray, and their prayer's not going to get answered. Deal with that. That's cool. Yeah. So, so as it relates to courageous, I haven't seen all the Christian films that are out there. But I was just like, you know what, guys? Way to go there. Way yeah. to go there. And then deal with it. Deal with it. And deal with it in a way that I think there's some authenticity there. And they really were trying to deal with the messiness of that in an authentic way. Um, what does community look like when you have to face those kinds of things? Yeah. So, and there was so much of that. Like I, I haven't seen that or like the facing the giants or any, any of those types of movies. Mainly just from a stylistic standpoint, it's really hard for me. And 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 I don't know. This is probably I try not to be a snob uh, as much as I can. But there's a lot, it, and I can't fight it sometimes when it's the people who are telling me to see it. I'm like, <laughs> I, I know their caliber of film. It doesn't often line up with my my own. So right. just from like a purely a stylistic point, uh, not not only because I feel like I'm just gonna get the gospel you know, handed to me in a very like middle of the road mm-hmm. kind of sprinkle it over everything and it fixes it kind of mm-hmm. way. I got to resonate with that. Like, and it's taken me a while to realize that no, and, and also turn kind of my, my parents and uh, a couple other uh, family members who, who were like, no, you can't watch that. It's not, you know, it's not Christian art, and, you know, bringing this full circle for what we we're talking about at the beginning, but showing, I remember the moment that I showed my mom, I, I had like a 30 minute discussion with her setting up the movie Magnolia and then showed it to her, which was... You watched Magnolia with your mom? No, I let her watch okay. it off, and I left. Uh, oh, my goodness. And and But with the setup, with everything that I was explaining mm-hmm. what she was about to see, she loved it, and she mm-hmm. resonated with it, and she was like, this is so fascinating. The I see the, the kind of parallels between the, the father-son and the, you know, the, the sins mm-hmm. of the father passing on to the son, and that, that's one of my favorite films, because I feel... I, Every time I watch it, I feel like... And it literally brought to biblical proportions. Yes. Literally. Which is beautiful. I love, I love. Uh, Especially, but she resonated, and which is the the part of that movie that I was the most worried about was the Tom Cruise character. Mm. With how crass and how uh, just his, all his intentions and every way that character makes his money is in the wrong. It's Mm -hmm. completely wrong and manipulative and and, uh, feeding on weaker people. And uh, that, and he's developed a system, and he charges money to get other guys to be evil like him. Mm-hmm. And then that character coming full circle with you know his father issues and and, mm-hmm. and reuniting with that whole thing. That that was one of the things that that she kind of resonated. and that was a huge step for me to kind of okay. This is right, this is after it came out, and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is what you're gonna see. Uh, <laughs> these words are gonna occur, but it doesn't. You know, and before that, she she's the kind of person, and uh, I, I've mentioned this on the show before. But like, she's the kind of person that would. They would be like, you know, no, I'm only going to watch, you know, movies that don't have that much conflict in it. Like older movies that kind of, the conflict mm-hmm. is just a silly misunderstanding or or like a super Christian movie that has mm-hmm. some sort of God. Regardless of what happens, that. you know you're going to be in safe hands. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's no real conflict because uh, God doesn't allow conflict to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, and that bothers me because that's not realistic to me. Well, the conflict you know. happens before you come to Christ. There you go. Then you come to Christ and, and the conflict, yeah, it's over. Yeah, it's over. It doesn't rain anymore. <laughs> you know, which it's a polarizing topic on its own because it, you tend to, you can very easily tread into kind of pretentious uh land well and it's a also bit too and, and it's also quite honestly a little bit difficult to talk about honestly uh just because whether it be christian films or like christian music there's a lot of great people in those industries yes uh with pure intentions 
for, for me, and I don't listen to a lot of Christian music either, I'm not trying to hate on the industry, but um, they just produce art in a different way than I respond to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I don't respond to all non-Christian, quote-unquote, art either. There's some, you know, there's some art out there yeah. that I don't respond to. That's kind of what I get back to. It's really a, a fundamental thing for me. The more you start kind of, you're preaching your message, whether you're a Christian or whether you're Al Gore, Movies and stories should be more parables, not sermons, regardless of what your message is. And so to me, uh, I, I just want to see things dealt with honestly. Uh, a, a good case in point, not even necessarily uh, recommending the movie flat out, but uh, Brokeback Mountain. Mm-hmm. Very uh, controversial film, certainly in Christian circles. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated about that film that was so honest Heath Ledger is married to Michelle Williams in that film. Uh, setting is, uh, what, 1950s or 60s, yeah. 70s, whatever it is. He's, he's a latent homosexual. He's married. As that latency begins to come out and uh, he gets found out. I, what I would have expected from uh, really any other movie is one of two things from the wife character. Either A, she's so mean and so hateful because she can't appreciate the struggle that he's going through mm-hmm. or she's going to be an angel and she understands and she, you know, uh, and, and even if it's tough for her, she can help him find himself and whatever. There was both of those cliches were put aside and mis- and they honestly dealt with her being betrayed and the pain and the rightful pain and the rightful anger she had at him for marrying her under the pretense of a lie. How dare him? But did it in a way where he wasn't the bad guy either, you know? Uh, but she wasn't the bad guy for hating him for it. You know, she was just the way it played out was honest. It, yes, the movie was about having sympathy for him, but it had sympathy for her too. Mm-hmm. Um, it had the sympathy for both, and it had the understanding of their wrongs as well. And that's what I love, is when a film somehow is willing to find the complexities and the depths, explore them, reveal them, express them, and portray them, as opposed to start falling into uh, cliches because it fits some, you know, Sid Field uh, model of what a screenplay needs to do and what right. each character, which purpose they need to serve. And that's all I want from a movie. That's all a movie really should give me um, is uh, as much authenticity as it can, uh, particularly if it's trying to uh, really be serious about its subject matter. Do you, uh, just as a kind of creative and filmmaker, do you have kind of scripts in your back pocket or do you, do you find time on the, on the regular to write at all or do you or you have ideas that you kind of explore a little bit how does that work i don't here is uh, for me my biggest challenge as a filmmaker i'm not a writer Mm -hmm. even though it's uh, a big part of my occupation for the last 15 years Uh, basically most of the writing that i do is very commercial based so it's uh, it's either short form or it's very for a very specific purpose um but like there was uh uh, a short film that i did a couple years ago um about seven minutes short uh it's called Pink Shorts, and it's basically like this little seven-minute fable. And since it was told in the style of a fable, the whole thing was narrated. And the, the main character was a six-year-old girl. And the opening line of narration says, uh, This is the story of a little girl. 
her favorite pair of pink shorts, and the judgment of Almighty God. And then it unfolds. Yeah. From there. And uh, that was inspired by, I won't even get into the whole uh, personal history of what inspired that. Direct, more direct inspiration was, I think it's chapter 13 of the book of Jeremiah. This, there's this element of Jeremiah's story that something happened to him. And it jumped out to me at a moment in time because of some other things that were going on in my life. And it felt very relevant. But it's this message from this Old Testament prophet, which can be very harsh. Yeah. And then just almost divinely, this, this, this uh, story started happening where I started imagining the same kind of story and the same kind of message, except now it's not this Old Testament prophet. It's this uh, modern day six year old girl. And creating a scenario where she kind of delivers the same message that Jeremiah was delivering, but who can deny the purity of a six-year-old girl? Yeah. And so, how, and so that became a very interesting way for me to say, how do I deliver a very relevant, necessary, harsh message to a contemporary audience? Have a six-year-old girl tell it to them. Some might say that's manipulative, but to me, that vessel helps you see the purity of the message. It's... Uh, from an adult, it might come off as fire and brimstone. From a six-year-old, it's just like, she's right. Yeah. You know? And now, I've still had... It was interesting because the short film uh, played in about 12 festivals. A great experience. I went to about five or six of them. Uh-huh. And it's interesting is uh, a lot of my Christian friends that saw it uh, didn't respond well to it because they were afraid that it was too fire and brimstone. I went to all these festivals. I had people coming up to me. They're not believers. Mm -hmm. Just coming up to me, just thanking me for the movie, for the honesty of it, um, how they responded to it, had these great conversations that, and what was great about it too for me was, even though it wasn't preaching at them and it was something that they could receive, then they were coming to me to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't having to go to them. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, quite honestly, I didn't even really have that kind of... My conversations never got that specific. Right. But, it, but by the nature of the film I had made, and them being so curious about, where'd that come from? Where'd you get that story? It's a, Well, to answer that question, I'm going to be sharing about my faith. Right. And my experiences that led to it and all that sort of thing. And so to me, when you, you know, I, I think expressing yourself honestly and a little courageously and in finding ways, again, I, I, I wrote the script myself, but it really just felt like one of those divine inspirations. I mean, it was just like flowing, you know, through me. It yeah. wasn't, there wasn't a lot of thought to it. And I tweaked it and worked yeah, it and course. developed it and whatnot. But the initial kind of just download, it was, it just felt like a download, just writing it. Wow. Um, and then just I had artistic inspirations from uh, uh, European cinema, French cinema, cinema Amelie. Was it does a, have a little bit of artistic Amelie inspiration. Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson, uh-huh. uh, kind of wide frame, static, not moving, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. So, you know, pulling in those artistic inspirations as opposed to just trying to make it really look glossy in Hollywood. Right. You know, um, and also just fit. I was trying to tell a fable and those aesthetic styles fit a fable well. I really went off on a tangent, but writing is really hard for me. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have a, a whole stack of scripts. So my challenge is, th- there are a couple ideas that I have right now, individual ideas around a bigger concept that I haven't figured out how to bring together in a narrative yet. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it'll be a short film. That's kind of where I've, my, my physical abilities are, my resource abilities are right now, is uh, whatever I want to do specifically, it's going to have to be in a short venue. But quite honestly for me, while, while I would feel confident as a director tackling something of a feature length, um, as a writer, that's where I'm at as a short right. story. So, uh, well, and, and I'm, I really credit you for being able to make a full-time living off of what you do uh, and, and even more specifically, making the art that you want to make. Mm-hmm. I know that includes some side jobs sure. of producing other art that you haven't made that people want to hear, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is kind of, in a sense, what I do every day. Mm-hmm. I'm producing other stuff uh, that I can be proud of, but it's not my thing. No. Doing what you want to do every day can be tough. Then you're, it drains you as well. Yeah. Maybe not only the evolution of a person, but the evolution of an artist. And I think I've heard this kind of play out in some of the stuff you've said is I used to want to be a part of the conversation. Now I'm getting to a point where I want to start the conversation. And so when I used to want to be a part of the conversation, I wanted to be up on everything. I wanted to follow every show. Yep. I wanted to have seen every movie, uh, heard every album. You know, I wanted to be a walking entertainment weekly. Yeah. I don't want to be a walking entertainment weekly anymore. I, I, don't, I don't have a desire to be a... I think it'd be fun to be a part of every conversation. I think I still think it would be fun to do that. Right. I don't have the energy for it. And so now um, I actually am listening to less music than maybe I used to. I, I am watching less TV and more focused on the TV I watch. I'm starting to uh, balance or swap that out a little bit with watching more and more movies. Um, I need to start reading more screenplays. But but I want to find the things that, not that everybody's talking about, I want to find the things that energize me. Yeah. That just go, man, I want to make that movie. I want to tell that story. I want to create, I want to evoke that feeling. I want to create that aesthetic. You know, um, that's what I want to gravitate towards. And uh, and I'll, I'll sample a lot, but I'll, I'll a lot more quickly give up on something. If I see, like, after a first episode of a new show... No, that's not going to hit it. That's yeah. not going to punch the button. I, I, I acknowledge I might be passing judgment on the show way too soon. Right. I should probably give it four or five episodes. I'm not being fair to it. I know that. But I just don't have the time or energy. I want right. to find that thing. If not enough is there to draw you in. Yeah. Then you got to cut it. I want to find the thing that I aspire to. Uh, that uh, I, I want to reach and not just enjoy. Yeah. I want to find ways to start the conversation as opposed to just be a part of the one. Absolutely. That I feel like that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast and specifically talk to, talk to you is because that's such a, like so many times we get caught up on and just consuming and taking everything in. And sometimes we just need, need to be reminded that you're like, no, it's okay. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's okay to, I don't have to be a part of the hunger games conversation. No, it's fine. No. That, and that's, have you read it? It's so good. Jeff. <laughs> you just, uh, Thank you so much for, for being on this oh, podcast. Oh, thank you, I, man. I had such a blast. Uh, I did want to end with one question. Yeah. Uh, and Mike Hornacek wants to know, what's oh. your favorite thing about Mike Hornacek? My favorite thing about Mike Hornacek is that he would ask that question. There you go. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff. That's the show this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to check out Jeff's movie, Pink Shorts, you can visit pinkshortsmovie.com. 
as well as check out his film reviews at thefish.com and Steelhouse's operations in general at steelhouse.com. And the Steelhouse podcast is still available on iTunes. It's a great listen, uh, really fun, interesting, and entertaining all around. So go check that out as well. You like putting stuff in your ear holes, don't you? You're listening to this, right? Well, go listen to that too. Uh, highly recommended. Great for road trips especially or uh, just getting stuff done around the house. Or I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to tell you how to listen to your podcast. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. As always, I'm Nick Flora. Go do something creative. 